Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champions. Here's the one, two, three. Check him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Thursday, July the 11th. 
2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Of course, you can email me at MikeSilva at talkingmetspodcast.com. You can check me out on Twitter at MikeSilvaMedia. And you can get the show on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever you want to call it, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. We didn't have a show on Sunday. It's been a little bit longer since the last time we talked, so I'm excited to be back here uh, during the All-Star break, a fun All-Star break with the Pete Alonzo Home Run Derby win, uh, a nice performance uh, by the Mets in the All-Star game, uh, another day off, and then the second half begins and uh, the questions need to be answered about where this team is going. I know Brody Van Wagenen is going to be addressing the media tomorrow in Miami. Of course, that's the long-awaited uh, address that seems to have to happen when the media wants to tell everybody when it happens. But be that as it may, uh, today we have uh, joining me Eno Saris of The Athletic. If you guys aren't familiar with Eno, and I'm sure you are, he's been on the MLB Network, ESPN, Fangraphs, does fantasy baseball, but does a lot of great analysis and deep dives into the game and recently he did some great work at the the athletic on uh, the baseball and whether the baseball is actually juiced uh, the myth of the home run derby slump and uh, really has a great perspective on the game and, and I'm excited to have him join me he also looked into the value of Zach Wheeler and that's going to be a big topic of conversation and we'll get into the Mets rotation and with all the rumors that there's a ton of interest in the Mets starting pitchers uh, it'll be interesting to see what Eno thinks the Mets can do, what they should do with these starters as they head to a new trade deadline, a hard trade deadline, this first July 31st, where after that, you can't make any deals. So will that have an impact? So Eno will be joining me in just a little bit. Excited to have him on. Uh, I'll start off real quick, and I'm not going to make it too long because this is not what it's about, nor may, many of you may not be aware yet or care, but uh, over the weekend, I... Uh, uh, Metsmerized Joe D, the proprietor owner of MetsmerizedOnline.com, and I decided to part ways. And this show will no longer be promoted on MetsmerizedOnline.com, and uh, I will no longer be either writing or contributing to the site. So that sounds ominous. That sounds negative, and and it really isn't. And yes, uh, part of the reason, or the main reason, I shouldn't say part, but it's part for me. Part of the reason that this happened was my uh, back and forth with the Daily News uh, beat writer. I'm not even going to give justice to give out their name because that's just giving them the promotion that they were looking for all along. Um, the accusations that I meant or said things that weren't ever meant or said uh, regarding uh, uh, qualifications of, uh, of that individual. If you guys want to go to Twitter and see it, you're more than welcome. I'm not going to get into it. But more importantly, I felt that this show and why I do this show is to be unfiltered, independent, not have somebody try to tell me how to run things or what I can say, what I can't say. And if that's what I want to be, then it's not fair for a site like MetsmerizedOnline.com that has their own agenda and their own views and their own ways of doing things and may have some pressures put on them that uh, I won't to uh, to be affiliated with me. And and I and I, I can't be angry with them about that. I'm disappointed by that because when I ran a website, 
I sound like an old man here back in the day, nybaseballdigest.com. I supported my writers and their views because I knew who they were and I knew what they meant and I knew what they did. Even when sometimes they had opinions that I didn't agree with, I supported them. Maybe that's why that site doesn't exist anymore, but there's other reasons for that. It's not just <laughs> that situation. So that's really what it's all about. Uh, will Metsmorized Online be on the show again? If they have great content, absolutely they'll be on the show again. And I'm sure they, at some point, they will. Am I angry at them? No. Am I disappointed? Yes. Uh, do you have a right to judge and make your own opinion? Absolutely. You could bring that up with them. Will it change anything here? Absolutely not. I, I, I appreciate everything that those guys did, the awareness they brought to the transformation of this show, which has had many iterations and now is a Mets-centric podcast for the last three-plus three plus years, basically. I appreciate that. And I think at this point, we both benefited, and uh, I think we both felt that the, the future didn't hold the same benefit or the same... Uh, Moving forward. Now, can that change? That always can change. Who knows? But for now, I, I wish those guys luck. Uh, there will be a show. There is a very plugged-in, locked-in subscriber base and audience already. So that I don't see any change in, in who's going to listen. Um, I'm not quite sure some of the newer, younger members of that community were all that enthralled with this type of podcast. I think they're looking for something a little different, a different product, and that's their prerogative. So... Um, you know, away we go. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to get into anything else. I'm not going to debate what, you know, people who don't, who are, are upset that I'm critical of their work on the team and they want to turn it into something else. That's on them. That's not on me. And I think there was a certain, to a certain degree, an organized, on a small group of people, an organized outrage to try to, uh, get me off the air and the beauty of being independent and doing this my way is that that can't happen you want to get me off the air stop listening and if you stop listening i'll respect that and i'll move on and uh talkingmetspodcast.com if you uh go to that you'll get the redirected to the the apple podcast and you'll get all the new uh, updates at mike silva media on twitter and if you want to send me an email mike silva m-i-k-e-s-i-l-v-a at talkingmetspodcast.com is the email address I'd be happy to hear from you. So that's that. Let's take a break. When we return, Pete Alonzo, the Home Run Derby, why that's more than just a Home Run Derby win for the Mets and Pete Alonzo, why that might be the beginning of something special. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'll be back with more right after this. I got a funny story. So freshman year of college, um, I there's this class that every freshman has to take. It's called The Good Life. Mm -hmm. And you to, at the beginning of the class, you have to write a, a paper, like a 500 word or five to 600 word paper on um, what is your good life? And for me, my good life is I want to play baseball. I want to have a family. I want to, I want to have a family. I want to, I want to be, be a, a good father. I want to be a good husband. And I want to, and I want to be a major league baseball player. And I want to be one of the best baseball players. I want, I want to be the best baseball player I can be. I want, I want to play major league baseball and I got to see because it wasn't realistic enough <laughs> and that's the thing it's like if you you can seriously if you kind of get out of your own way you can unlock limitless potential in yourself and that's just kind of who I am well wow. I've never wanted to do anything else you just seem like somebody who really enjoyed the moment and enjoyed being on the big stage am I reading that right yeah I feel like I won this weekend just by 
enjoying everything to the fullest. I mean, it's. I mean, I, I'm just so so thankful for the opportunity uh, to be here, and um, it's to be in the lo in this locker room is, is an incredible honor. And um, I know I don't know if this is going to be my only one, so I just want to keep continuing to work hard and keep progressing because you never know when the game's going to be taken away from you. And um, for me, I'm, I'm just thankful for every opportunity, and this is this has been an absolute fantasy come true, and I, I can't be thankful enough. And I look forward to, to keep working hard and um, just keep playing well. Great stuff from Pete Alonzo. That was some quotes from Pete Alonzo on the uh, Shea Anything podcast with uh, Steve Gelbs and Wayne Randazzo and then Andy Martino interviewing him, Andy Martino of SNY interviewing him after the All-Star game. And I'll start off by this. Let me... Let me say, I've been trying, especially over the last year, to find reasons or find the catch. Maybe that's the cynicism in me, and maybe that's unfortunately a byproduct of being in New York. This team, the Mets, uh, doing media, having been in radio, all the different things create a lot of cynicism about performance. And you all know that I hate narratives, and I hate how people swing so wildly with a narrative, and and gush over events that may be recency bias or small sample size or something along those lines. But as the season has gone on, and this really started last year when Pete Alonzo started to become a name, and you saw him in the Futures game, and you saw those numbers down in Binghamton and then Vegas. I've been keeping an eye on him, waiting for the catch, and then he comes into spring training and he wins a job. And then I say, okay, when's a job? Let's see how things go. And then he has a really good April. And it's like, okay, when's the slump coming? And even when he had a little bit of a dive in May, he had the home run to tie things up in uh, Milwaukee. And then he had the big home run against, I think it was the Reds maybe, that tied the game. It was with the Nats maybe that tied the game late. He always seemed to do something big. And then you're waiting for the defense to fall apart, like every scout said. And at every turn... Every time I'm waiting for something, and it's still very early, you know, he's at a half of baseball, one, about 50% of the season, a little bit more. So he's not complete. His season's not over. But every time I'm waiting for it to collapse, um, it's not happening. And then there's the special part, and that's the part that I'm a hard grader. I don't like to just to throw special on people because there's a lot of public relations and manipulation and, and media bias and things that make people seem more than they are. But every time I hear Pete Alonzo talk, there is a sincerity, there is something about him that makes you like him, that makes you believe him, that shows you that he wakes up every day trying to be not only the best version of Pete Alonzo, like everybody always talks about, but to be the best at what he does out of everybody. And that's something that's been missing around here for a long, long time. I look back at some of the moments. The end of, like, which wasn't really a big deal here in New York, but at the, the last game at Cashman Field in Vegas, Pete Alonso ends that stadium, a big day for those guys out there in Vegas, with a home run. With a home run that, uh, uh, you know, walk-off home run. Uh, you saw what he did in the Futures game last year. Now you see what he does in the home run derby. And, and he got a big hit in the All-Star game. It seems like in these moments when there is bright lights, 
Pete doesn't feel pressure. I'm sure he's nervous, but Pete really thrives on it and wants to make it the best moment possible. And to me, that's what this team needs. That's what leadership's about. And all the stuff that everybody criticizes him for, you know, to date, you know, maybe not so much now, but, oh, he can't play defense. Oh, you know, he's, you know, he's got holes in his swing and, uh, you know, He's a first baseman, so there's not that much value compared to other players like Aaron Judge and things like that. I, I don't care about that. All I know is the New York Mets lost their power hitter, their big power hitter, Ioannis Cespedes. Didn't go out really and replace that power. And Pete Alonso said, I'll, I'll do it. Um, everybody said he couldn't play first base. And even during the All-Star game just a couple of days ago, he's out there taking more ground balls than anybody else. Uh, he loves the Mets. He loves playing in New York. I know I've seen anger in him during times in this season when they've played poorly, you know, especially in San Diego during that whole Chris, uh, Paddock scenario that you know, he felt that uh, you know, we need to win tonight. And unfortunately, unlike the NBA, unlike the NHL, and maybe to a certain extent the NFL, one player can't do it. Pete Alonso can't get outs in the eighth inning. Pete Alonso can't help Ahmed Rosario catch ground balls. Uh, Pete Alonso can't help Noah Syndergaard find a slider. So he can't do it all. But the fact that the Mets have him, and then next to him, well, maybe if he plays second base, this guy with supreme confidence in Jeff McNeil, who not only has supreme confidence, but is willing to play any position and play it as well as he can, those are special characteristics that are not going to show up on fan graphs, are not going to show up on baseball reference, that sometimes, and I'm the first one to say, get talked about way too much and made more of than it really is. But these are important for this team and this organization that is stuck outside of 2015 and maybe like 8 or 12 weeks in 2016 in a real bad rut for about a decade. And it's self, uh, self-inflicted in a lot of ways. It's also exacerbated because you have a group of people in the media that don't like the owners and are looking for the story that they want. And I think these two guys are going to work really hard at trying to turn that around so that this kind of stuff that's happened this year doesn't happen again. I hope that their attitude, mainly Pete, and I think Pete is the guy that's going to be the hub. I think McNeil's going to be the lunch pail guy. I think Pete is going to be a guy that hopefully, as they try to figure out how they get to the level where they should be, the level that they were at 2015 and to a certain extent in 2016, that he won't let the things get too bad where other young players will be ruined by it. One of the things that a season like this can do, especially with veterans who may be having their eye on free agency or getting out of here in the clubhouse, is... The environment gets poisoned and bad habits form. On another sport, the Knicks, Kristaps Porzingis, I always felt that his issues with the Knicks were his issues, but having Carmelo Anthony and the negativity and some of the bad example that Carmelo Anthony and how Carmelo Anthony worked with the front office and handled his situation with the front office and the poisonous of that media room, which is about as poisonous as there is in sports. And I hate to say it, the Mets beat is not that far behind. And um, maybe they're not as dangerous because they're not as experienced as some of the guys that were in that room. But um, the poisonousness of the environment, I think, 
played a lot into why Kristaps Porzingis didn't want to be around here anymore and why players are going to Brooklyn, which is New York, but not New York when it comes to professional sports. So hopefully Pete Alonso can be that that voice because right now he's a leader by example and by great attitude. He's not there long enough to be that leader. They needed somebody when David Wright left. And you thought maybe Michael Conforto, you know, what kind of big free agent can you go out there and get? But it's hard to import leadership because they don't bleed the uniform. They buy into the uniform because they were paid to buy into the uniform. And then you hope they find love. You didn't get that out of Carl Speltron. He was a guy that just wanted to go out there and be great at what he did. Pete Alonso has the chance to be that kind of leader, that guy that grew up through the organization, overcame obstacles, came here, and help turn this team into a, a, a winner. And even David Wright, who was a great guy and a really good third baseman in his prime, maybe one of the best all time for a two- or three-year period, did not always take the big moments. And I'm not saying he didn't embrace them, but I don't think he thrived or yearned for them like Pete Alonso. I think David... David's leadership was more steadiness. And there and there's people like that that you need on a team. But this team right now needs someone that's going to bring them to another level. Can he do it? He's shown a lot of signs. Every time he's gone out and set a goal, as impossible, as you heard him say in that, in that quote, as impossible as it may seem, he's gone out there, he's tried to figure out how to get better, and he's achieved it. And now the next goal is, can he sustain what right now is? He's, other than Howard Johnson's 1989, from an offensive standpoint, Pete Alonso's having the best offensive season in Mets history. That's with, rank it by OPS plus, which, you know, regular, you know, basically takes everything into consideration, including his peers, ballparks. So it's not like you can say, well, this is the juice baller and Hojo played in 1989. Forget all that. It's waiting it. In the same manner, it's all weighted the same based on the performance of the season. And other than Howard Johnson's 1989, he's got the second highest OPS plus through today in Mets history. And that's a big deal. And something tells me, despite everyone waiting for the Mets jinx and the home run derby jinx and for things to happen bad to the Mets, because that's what happens to the Mets according to the media, something tells me that Pete Alonso's bigger than that, better than that. And I also think Jeff McNeil falls into that as well, so... That's uh, that's the importance of the Home Run Derby. Forget about the fun of it. Forget about the All-Star break and, and engaging the fans. We'll get into that with Eno Saris in a little bit. The Home Run Derby and what you saw the other day is a synopsis of what this kid can do and the leadership and the passion and the example that he could bring to this organization that sorely needs it and hopefully can bring a bright light to what has become a really negative cesspool media situation that you listen to Travis Darno with Kevin Kernan in that article in the New York Post the other day, things are different here. And you can blame ownership, but you want to know something? Ownership doesn't throw out irresponsible, silly tweets and irresponsible narratives and twists people's words and looks at the negative on all the situations that are in front of them. That's the media. That's the environment. That's the fans. And if that's the way it's going to be, you can't change everybody. How you do it is you win. And you need someone special to help you turn that around. And maybe Pete Alonso is the first, along with his buddy Jeff McNeil, the all-star, that uh, can help do that for this organization. 
We're going to take a quick break. When we return, Brody Van Wagenen, the chair-throwing incident, that's more news than it should be, and how important the next couple of weeks are for Brody Van Wagenen and how he could channel a little Sandy Alderson from Sandy Alderson's first July trade deadline. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. How is the team shaping up? those clips of Billy Bean and I know that that's a movie and there's probably some artistic license in some of those throwing incidents and obviously the clip of uh, Billy going into the clubhouse and tearing down Nick Swisher uh, after a loss as he's as he's having fun and dancing and, and he's like that's what losing sounds like and I, I just I bring that up because I, I thought of that immediately when the report in the middle of the game last Saturday came out from the New York Post that Brody Van Wagenen threw a chair during a post-game meeting on Friday with the Mets after their tough loss to the Phillies. And all of a sudden, uh, a lot of people, fans, media, none of whom have ever really managed anything or have been in a clubhouse or have talked to people that have been in a clubhouse, you know, act like this is the first time in the history of baseball that a, a chair is thrown. Not the kind of thing that you typically want to see, and I'm probably not not something that Brody Van Wagenen wants to do, but... If you don't think coaches of the NBA break clipboards, throw stuff, throw tantrums, curse, yell, I mean, geez, guys, please. Uh, why is it a story? Because it, it opens the curtain. The only reason it's a story is because it opens the curtain to a private moment. The real story, like Andy Martino said, and I agree 100% with him, is that why is there a leak? That's Brody. Brody has to figure that out. If it, now, if that's the owner, that's a big problem. And I don't think that's the owner that's leaking to New York, the New York Post. I know Jeff Wilpon leaks. Uh, he leaks for sure. Uh, I don't know if it's that. And if it's someone on the coaching staff, uh, it really tells me the coaching staff has to go. I mean, the whole coaching staff. And the only one that Brody brought in was uh, Chili Davis. And, and maybe you'd have to even wonder, is is he having all that much fun here? So uh, it, it, I always talk about things getting ugly and firing Mickey Calloway if it gets ugly. This breach, the leaking, this is not good, and this is reason to fire. But the problem with the breach is you don't know if it's coming from that coaching staff. Who else was around? Listen, Brody Van Wagenen knows who was around and who heard it. Now, players probably heard it, and that's possible that the players are throwing that out there. Who knows? Uh, it's hard to, to, to really uh, ascertain the whole thing, but the real problem is that there was a leak, which tells you there's cracks in the armor, which tells you things inside there are falling apart, and you got to start to figure out who are the people that are doing that? Get rid of them. And who could you bring in that, that changes that? And that's a big chore. And that's more of an off-season chore. You can't do that on an interim basis. You can't do that in five minutes in the middle of July during the All-Star break. 
forget all that because you're going to see over the course and you've seen it over in uh, Yahoo and, and the New York Post, all the grades are going to give midseason grades. Let's give Fs, Fs. They're sitting there giving their Fs like they're like they're middle school teachers because uh, they don't like the students. So let's give Fs, 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 Fs. And that, look, they deserve it. I mean, Familia deserves an F. I mean, I'm not saying it. It, it it's almost like it, it feels better when you're the teacher because you feel like the student who you put time into is is not giving you the time back that you want. So it, when you give that F, you kind of you zing it a little bit better. Forget all the grades because Brody Van Wagenen's grade is incomplete. I told you this in the last podcast, so I'm not going to get too deep into this. We did a whole podcast on Brody and what's going on. His grade is incomplete. You can't make it all about the Cano trade. You don't know what Kelnick is going to be. Certainly you can debate everything, positive, negative. And right now, like the middle of a baseball game, when you're down 3 nothing, 4 nothing in the fourth inning, it doesn't look good all the time. That doesn't mean you're going to lose, and that doesn't mean the process you put in place is bad. I do know that they just had a really solid appears on paper amateur draft, and that's to be commended. He signed a player that many all these teams, including big wigs like the Yankees and the Cubs, uh, did not think they could sign. He pulled it off. Uh, a guy that many thought uh, is a top 15 talent, someone that uh, if he was signable would have been taken with the top 10 pick maybe. Maybe if he goes to college, uh, he would have been a top pick in the draft in a couple of years. So that's to be commended. Uh, you can't give a guy a failing grade when now, uh, you know, his promise of winning now, winning the future is a double-edged situation. He hasn't won now. There's been a lot of bad luck in that. I don't think any GM out of the 30 teams could have figured that Familia will pitch uh, worse than any average reliever that you could bring up uh, from AAA, that Edwin Diaz would struggle like this, that Cano, even if he had regressed, that would be uh, Carlos Baerga bad uh, when Carlos Baerga came here. Maybe Carlos Baerga's numbers were better when he was here. Um you know, that the component players wouldn't work out, that the pitchers would get hurt. I mean, everything is, I mean, it's just every bad, you know, you know, hop, to use a baseball term, has happened. That doesn't mean the process is bad because we don't, we're not in those 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 meetings. We don't know what a Jared Bannon and an Alan Baird and other lieutenants in uh, Brody's staff think. You, know, you hear all the, the Wilpons there, nothing, you know, Mark Carrig is on the uh, uh, podcast on The Athletic talking about the Wilpons, that's why the, this chair incident throw, throwing happened, the culture. What does that have to do with anything? Uh, because Jeff is hard on them and wants them to win. Brody's going to throw a chair. And you think that it's like a, a boardroom meeting uh, with your editor uh, in, in the other 29 clubhouses? This stuff happens. And, and baseball is – And you, Doug Glanville wrote about this recently. The baseball locker room is not like the, the, the office that you might be in. It's different. It's almost outside of society, and you could debate good or bad on that. So that's not the big deal right now. The story shouldn't be the grades and the jokes and the piling on of Brody because you don't like him or you wanted someone else to get the job. Uh, I mean, Carrig actually had the nerve to say in this podcast that Brody is showing that he has no ability to manage up with ownership. He's never done it before. He, he got to the head of CAA. You don't think he's ever managed up in, 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 his, in his life? You don't think managing clients sometimes requires also managing up? You don't think clients would, would, would maybe be upset with the, the company? You don't think managing and getting up the line at a big company requires managing up throughout various points in his career? I mean, come on, guys. It just goes to show me you really don't understand the dynamic 
You understand narratives and what you want to say. You don't understand what it takes to get up the line in these places. And does that mean you're going to be able to do it as the GM of a baseball team? No. But those are skills that he possesses. Whether he can do it in his new environment, we'll see. But what really Brody needs to do is channel a little Sandy Alderson 2011. Because he might be able to pull a real big move here that puts the Mets in a position to do exactly what he wants to do, win now and win in the future. Sandy Olderson had an asset, or many who many thought was not an asset in Carlos Beltran in 2011. And I remember, and I've told this story on this podcast, I was sitting with and having dinner with a member of the Mets, a player, and I asked him about Beltran. And he says he's horrible, he can't move, he can maybe play three days a week, I don't know what's going on there. This was during spring training that year. And I'm just thinking to myself, the end of the contract, hey, it happens. You got the best out of Beltron early on. Yeah, I think it was the microfracture surgery had just come off of at that point. You know, that you just don't really come back from that stuff. And he was a free agent, so at the the best case scenario is maybe you dump some salary at some point. You're probably gonna have to eat the whole thing and away you go. And Beltron wound up having one of his better years that year. Amazingly enough, and wasn't a guy that was just playing three, four days a week. And at the trade deadline, when everyone's telling you you can't get anything because he's going to be a free agent, and Sandy Alderson to the 11th hour held fast for what he wanted, and he wanted, may not have been Zach Wheeler first, I think it was Brandon Belt he really wanted, but Wheeler was the guy that they really coveted, and, and if they could they could turn uh, the Giants to, to really uh, be open to that, which they weren't at the beginning, Giants went out and said, you know what, we have a chance to repeat, you have a chance to win. They desperately needed offense. And they said, you know, Zach Wheeler's two, three years away. What good is that going to do for us? Meanwhile, Zach Wheeler, by the time he came into the league a couple of years later, Giants had won another title. They were on the verge of winning another title. So, you know, it was about, for them, winning now. And with the trade deadline being hard, I think Brody can do that with Zach Wheeler now. Ironically, the same guy that the Mets acquired. Even though he has warts, and I think Sunday showed you why, every time I say, ah, why would you give up on this guy? Why would you not give him a multi-year deal? The Mets are going to have a really big challenge piecing together rotation because they may lose Vargas. They may want to trade Syndergaard. They're not going to have uh, Wheeler. You're basically going to have DeGrom and four questions. He has that kind of outing. But the metrics entice people. Uh, his brother was on Twitter, made a point. Well, you know, Zach's basically season is, you know, juiced ball. Don't disagree there. And some bad defense. I agree with, with those assertions. But I also think Zach is his own worst enemy where, you know, he gets behind people. He walks people, you know. And sometimes his numbers, even though they, they're the same as they were last year, they kind of go in these really bad spurts, really good, really bad, streaky. So... There's going to be teams out there that need pitching and believe in a league where about 20 teams are within five games of a wild card. Believe that they could sneak into the tournament. And forget about all the scouts and the analytics guys and the media. Well, you know, you got to be responsible. You know, you can only get... This is the value of Zach Wheeler in a vacuum. If you have a chance to get in the tournament and win as a wild card, a second wild card, you could do damage and maybe win something. And that's what this is about. It's winning. It's not building... Uh, fantasy dynasties, then you don't get points for having the best farm system. It's about winning. And yeah, do you want to win and keep your current good players and your future prospects? You can, but you know what? Then the Mets could just hold on to the guy and get the, make the qualifying offer. Who knows 
depending on how his season goes and how the market is, maybe he doesn't get the long-term deal he wants and he takes it and he stays another year. Uh, because if they don't get something that's way better than a draft pick, which the qualifying offer would give them, then why trade them? And that's where the, let's see what Brody Van Wagenen can do to sell these teams or maneuver that process to get the Mets something. And I even threw a wild idea out, which doesn't include Wheeler, but includes more Noah Syndergaard. Noah Syndergaard still has controllability. Uh, there are many out there that feel that maybe a change of environment uh, can unleash the potential that we saw back in 15 and 16, and we haven't seen since, to a certain degree saw last year, but really haven't seen since he tore his lap in 2017. Would he be able to go to the Padres and ask them for Paddock, who is not going to be able to pitch deep into games and maybe on an innings limit and may not be able to help them as much this year for Noah. And if they feel that they can work out the kinks and maybe that a change of scenery, I mean, look, a change of scenery, if you get Noah Syndergaard 2016, he's as good, if not better than Paddock. And he's got more playoff experience. He might be the guy that you could lean on in, in a one game playoff and in a, in a seven game or five game series. And all of a sudden the Padres sneak into the, the postseason, They become dangerous with a good bullpen. So can that be something that the Mets could pull off? I don't know. It's interesting to think about. All I do know is this. Small sample size. Brody's had some really bad luck with the secondary pieces that he's brought in. And he swung for the fences on a trade that right now isn't really looking too good for him uh, in the short term. We'll see what the long term brings. But I do know what I saw during that amateur draft was a guy that demands that his staff think out of the box, demands that his staff thinks creatively, and can close a deal in a tough situation with a tough agent in a, in a, in a, in a scenario where the cards weren't, the, the deck wasn't stacked in his favor. Why can't he do it at the trade deadline? And what can that do for the Mets where they can be set up now to win in the near term and the long term? And that's what every single trade, there's no reason why this organization should tear it down to the studs and start over. The only one that wins in that situation, by the way, is the guy that you're mad at, Brody Van Wagenen, because he'll get himself three to five years of job security because he can always turn to his bosses and say, look at my farm system rankings. We're going to be ready this year. Remember when Sandy was in, and that wasn't all Sandy Alderson's fault, in baseball purgatory when the Mets were in the financial distress with Madoff and they were basically not competing in 11, 12, 13. It was always, well, 2014's the year. And then when 2014 happened and they brought in free agents and it didn't happen, uh, you started to wonder, well, when is the year happening? The fans were getting impatient, and then all of a sudden, 15 happened. Uh, a little bit of luck with that. So you could always say next year is the year, and this is when we're on schedule, and you could go back to the Astros and the Sports Illustrated article that was uh, clairvoyant and predicted uh, their World Series, but that's not real. That's luck, and that's not something that you can build an organization on. You can win now. You could compete now responsibly and win in the future. And in the league where it's just showing more and more parity, 20-somewhat teams within like five games, I think, of the wild card, there's no reason why every year the Mets shouldn't be trying to win and trying to put the best product on the field and taking responsible risks, which I still believe the Jared Kelnick deal was a responsible risk at the time. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Eno Saris at The Athletic, what does he think of this? Does he think about uh, Zach Wheeler uh, having value or Paddock being available for Noah Syndergaard. What about the juiced balls and the home run derby? And are Mets fans in store for a slump from Pete Alonso because he won the home run derby? There's all these little narratives that are out there. He knows a uh, fact-based, analytically-based writer. Let's hear his thoughts 
And if you haven't had a chance to check him out at The Athletic, you really should. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with Eno Saris of The Athletic right after this. There it is! Pete Alonso fires the bat up. He's your home run derby champion of 2019. He didn't even need the 30-second bonus. How impressive was that? What a show we saw tonight. Vlad Jr. and Alonzo, what a respect right there. Nothing but love. That was fun. The former Florida Gator and his brother, if you will, who came over here from Ohio and pitched himself to a derby championship. We're back and joining us, you guys know him over at The Athletic, Eno Saris. He's, uh, he's been around Fangraphs, ESPN, MLB Network. He's uh, been all over the place, does great work at Eno Saris on uh, Twitter. And Eno, welcome to the program. So All-Star break, festivities, home run derby, uh, All-Star game. Uh, we keep hearing about how baseball's dying and maybe there's some issues, but I'm not a big All-Star game home run derby guy, but the last few days in Cleveland, it's been pretty fun. Wouldn't you agree? I thought it was really fun, and I, my mind was changed a little bit about the Home Run Derby when I saw it live. I'm not saying that it's terrible on TV or, oh, you have to see it live or whatever, but it, it's, it's very exciting, actually. I saw Trumbo go up against Stanton, and the balls are almost leaving the park. Uh, and they're very majestic. They're bigger than normal homers. They're the, they're the biggest homers you might see in a season, so... Uh, I, I think they're really fun, and it's a, it's a feat of athleticism because it's really tiring, you know, to take that many high-effort swings uh, over and over again in that format. I think the format changes made a big deal. Uh, the way that they go head-to-head and there's time and all that, that made a big difference. You know, the game itself, it's, I think there's a fatal, fatal flaw with all All-Star games, which is that it don't matter. <laughs> um, but it's still fun. And I, I, I thought the way they mic'd up the players this year was amazing. The, the, the players, getting them to kind of let us into a little bit what they're thinking about with Freddie Freeman talking about this is going to be a fastball and, um, and all that stuff, that was, that, was, that, was, that was so great. I think other leagues are going to copy that. Yeah, and it's almost like the NBA where you've always had, and they've been doing it for over 20 years or, or more, with the boom mic over the coach's huddle. Maybe the NBA, because of the close proximity to the, the fans, there's that interaction. But if baseball could do that, yes, there are issues with pace of play. Yes, there's some ugly games. Yes, 162-game season, you're going to get a plenty of duds and bad weather. But if you can get some of that bells and whistles, and I'm in my 40s, so I'm a big baseball guy, so I don't need that stuff. It makes it fun, but you're, you're going to hopefully start to engage the audience that I guess they feel or people who are studying this feel they're not engaging with. Hmm. Yeah, um, it's hard for me. I enjoy basketball. I don't watch football. I think that a lot of times we see these games through our just our own enjoyment of them, and so we think, oh, basketball is thriving. Baseball is fine. I, I still enjoy baseball. I'm not, I'm not that upset that it's more homers than strikeouts. I can, I, I can hear when people say, yes, uh, there's not enough balls in play. 
and there's this problem, and, and we don't sometimes the young players aren't brought up because of service time rules, and um, yes, maybe maybe we're approaching too many homers, but I still enjoy it a lot. It's still a great game. If we want to tweak it a little bit, let's do that. I'm a little bit against like the big tweaks, like moving the mound back or um, you know going to a 140 game schedule or uh, going to seven innings or whatever it is. Like, the big changes, I'd rather do little changes and see if we can just kind of tweak the game a little bit. Yeah. Do you? Are you? I know you wrote about this with the ball in your recent column, and Justin Verlander made a lot of news and. Look, we know the home run derby ball is juiced. I mean, that's always been the case. But there's no denying it. Even here in New York, Pete Alonzo, who we all love and hit, hit these huge home runs, there's been a couple of home runs this year that he's hit that when it came off the bat, oh, that's a pretty deep fly ball. And I look at the center fielder, and he keeps going back, and he keeps going back, and all of a sudden he turns around, and that thing's in the berm. That thing's flying into you know, deep center field where nobody usually hits it. And you're saying to yourself, is it wind? Is it the ball? Is it the bats? There is, I mean, and you, you could talk about your piece because you get into this very deep uh, analytically. It just seems from the eye, not the, the distance. It seems balls that all of a sudden normally would be fly balls. They're just, they're just flying over the center field wall. Yeah, we have a piece on The Athletic by Meredith Wills where she actually took the ball and took it apart. She looked at how thick the, the seams were, how thick the, the strings were, how high the seams were, how smooth the leather was, how centered the middle was, or how centered the pill was, however that it's called. And basically it's different in three different ways. Uh, the first time it was different in, in 2015 or so, it was mostly the seams. But this time she says even the leather seems different. It's smoother. So we're about to see records and home runs and it's related to the ball, just like it was when we first saw this big increase in late 2015, early 2016. So it's definitely the ball. Yes. Players are trying to launch the ball in the air a little bit more. Yes. Players are, you know, not worried about the strikeout. And so they're taking their a swings, every swing. They're not really doing the two strike approach as much. Those things matter. And those things lead to strikeouts and home runs, but the ball is different. It flies further, given the same amount of exit velocity. It has less drag on it. It goes further. And it particularly, I think, is easiest to see on opposite field home runs. You know, everyone pulls big home runs, 400-foot home runs. We see that all the time. But opposite field, a lot of times you hit a ball opposite field, and that slice robs it of its, of its distance, and it, you know, the outfielder settles underneath it, and it's an easy catch. Now we're seeing a lot of those opposite field fly balls just get over the fence and they they just got that extra three to five feet from the reduced drag on the new ball that it required to go to go out yeah and and you know what you know if you're a hit baseball story and i'm sure you are this isn't the first time that we've seen something like this go back to 1987 and <laughs> this is around the time when baseball if i remember correctly and i'm a young baseball fan first maybe first or second year really getting into the game and you're 10 11 years old you really don't understand it like you would today. They were thinking about bringing in aluminum bats. They were thinking about it. And then they, I think they, there was talk of them playing with the ball. And, and Wade Boggs hit like 25 home runs. That was the year McGuire hit 49 home runs. Yes, steroids, we can bring that up. Uh, Consenco did what he did the following year. But there was a barrage of home runs. Here in New York, Mets fans, Rafael Santana, they may remember, hit five home runs. That's the guy who used to hit maybe one home run. So, this isn't the first time this has been discussed. Maybe it's been a long time, but 
This happened before, and, and then it went away, and then it became the year of the pitcher the following year. So it makes you wonder, has baseball been tampering or been playing with us for you know its entire history, and, and now with all the intention and the media, maybe we're, we're getting smart to it. Yeah. Uh, there are some people that, that think the steroid era is mislabeled. Um, and that's an interesting kind of rabbit hole to go down because – we don't. We do have a better testing policy now, and there's probably fewer people doing steroids. But we also don't know exactly how many are doing it now, and we don't really know how many were doing it then. So it's all a guessing game. And this this baseball change has added another layer. We're like, wow, maybe the late '90s was another baseball change. Um, and some of it, I'm not, and I'm not here to say that baseball did it on purpose, um, because. There, you know, there are manufacturing specifications. Rawlings changes their manufacturing specifications. They're trying to make it uh, the ball cheaper, and they're always trying to make it more efficient. Um, and it's hand stitched. There's always going to be sort of a variation, and that's that's baseball's line. You know, baseball does own Rawlings, but I'm, that doesn't mean that they are in Rawlings business on the level of what are you doing to this ball every day, and what are your specifications. So. Um, I'm not saying that necessarily baseball did this on purpose, but it does add a sort of flavor to looking back on the history of baseball and the different times we've had offensive explosions. There's been different reasons for it. The ball probably, expansion, uh, different stadiums, uh, and maybe we put too much on steroids. Yeah, not not, not, not disagreeing at all. Uh, Eno Saris, the athletic, at Eno Saris on Twitter. Now, the other topic of conversation that will happen, especially with a team like the Mets that – uh, currently is is playing going to be playing out the string, looking to trade some players off. Is well now you have Pete Alonso. He's having this historic Mets season. He's he's been a breath of fresh air. Not only for the Mets, I think he's a different type of guy that the league hasn't seen. You know, you saw some of that personality on the the home run derby stage, and the home run derby. There's this thought that it's going to screw up your swing. All us amateurs who played wiffle ball, remember you know you didn't want to play wiffle ball the day of your sandlot game. You don't want to screw up your swing. And uh, will it screw up Pete Alonso's swing? And you actually wrote a piece uh, a little bit while ago. Is the home run derby curse real? Now, is it a curse? Is it the fact that you're playing pseudo softball? It, you know, is it the fatigue? So are you, if you're a Mets fan, you know, or a Mets fan comes up to you and says, you know, I'm worried. This is going to screw Pete up. This is going to screw up his second half. All this good stuff he's done is going to go out the window. Big slump ahead. What are you going to tell that individual? <laughs> uh, it's a weird answer, but I would say a slump is coming, and it has nothing to do with the home run derby. <laughs> the, the the thing that happens is that the most um, auspicious home run hitters get picked for the home run derby, and just being picked for the home run derby means that you're kind of playing at your best, and that there's probably some regression coming. Um, you know, Mike Petriello showed that all stars uh, regress really heavily after the all-star game. And that's because you get guys that are picked that, you know, are having a great first half and they're not necessarily perennial all-stars. They're just guys having a great first half. So I'm not saying that Pete Alonso is not great, but I, you know, we don't know necessarily what his true talent power level is. And if he does regress a little bit, it has nothing to do with the home run derby. It probably just has to do with, you know, the ebb and flow of the league, uh, sort of trying to pitch him differently, figuring him out in some way and him having to react to that. So I would say, yes, a lot of these guys may regress, but it has nothing to do with the home run derby. If you check them against their projections, which bakes that regression in, there's no difference. Yeah, and uh, that 
that's where the debate and that's where talk radio and that's where sensibility and why we try to get guys like you on the show. Uh, Eno Saris, The Athletic, uh, if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic, and by the way, I'm not just saying this because Eno's on the show. I subscribe. I pay out of my pocket, and there's a lot of good content. You need more of that in this uh, day and age. So uh, here's the rub. So the Mets, like we said, are at the race. They'll have Jeff McNeil and Pete Alonso to watch the fans. But the real test now for Brody Van Wagen, and it's similar to his predecessor, uh, Sandy Alderson on his, in his first full season is the trade deadline. And Sandy Alderson acquired Zach Wheeler in 2011 for Carlos Beltran, a player that many thought was finished and wouldn't yield very much. And he was able to play a little poker and get Zach Wheeler. No one thought that could be the case for a guy on his walk year. Now the world has changed. You wrote about Wheeler, and this has been a big debate for a while. How good is Zach Wheeler? I've never been a huge Wheeler fan. I've always felt the mechanics, and he has had Tommy John surgery, is going to lead to a breakdown. Uh, he was always a laborer, threw too many pitches, too many 3-2 counts. But then he broke out in the second half last year. And now this year, everything from the peripheral seems the same, but the results are different. And he's, if you look at baseball reference, he's a below-league average pitcher. Now – his brother, who's on Twitter, says it's the juice ball and bad defense, and that's not all unfair, but something tells me that maybe Zach Wheeler isn't as good as everyone thinks, although now you hear there's a dozen teams after him. How good is Zach Wheeler, Eno, and can the Mets get something of value similar to how Sandy Olison traded Carlos Beltran back in 2011? I think he's probably the second or third best starting pitcher that's available um, at the deadline, and uh, I think he's a quality guy. One of the best predictors of future success is velocity, and he's got basically the third or fourth best velocity among starting pitchers in the big leagues. So he's definitely, you know, pitching coaches everywhere are, are licking their lips. And I think one thing that I see when I looked at him with too many two-seamers, the league is mostly going to four-seamers because they don't want contact. If you watch a Zach Wheeler start, I think you see a ton of foul balls. And the foul balls, to me, are a bad sign. I know that foul balls can be useful, especially early in the count. They're a strike or whatever but it also suggests that he's not finishing guys off. And it means that the hitter is kind of close to making contact, you know, uh, it's, it's contact. It's just not in the right direction, basically. So I think that he throws too many two seamers. And I think that if he went to the Astros, for example, they would change his arsenal a little bit and focus on the four seamer and, and change uh, his strikeout rate basically and, uh, and make him a better pitcher really with the same stuff. So I, I think pitching coaches everywhere are kind of, uh, are, you know, are, are salivating over the chance of getting Wheeler. And I think that, you know, I'm not trying to say anything bad about Phil Regan. Uh, I was a big Dan Wortham fan actually. Um, but uh, I do think that the Mets as an organization have to look into pitch design have to look into the new way of pitching coaches and have to really look at getting the most out of their pitchers. Because if you look at everybody other than Jake DeGrom, you know, there's been uh, a step back, I think, in pitch development. And yes, maybe the, the ball has something to do with it. Dan Worthen taught them all this crazy slider that has just a little bit of a flick of the wrist at the end. Um, and that slider you, with, the, with the new ball, I think it might be particularly hard to throw. I kind of have a piece about that up today. Even if you load up with pine tar, you've seen uh, Noah Syndergaard load up with pine tar, and he get, got rid of the Morphin slider. He's throwing a more conventional slider. He stopped throwing the slider as much because it's not as good for him. And so I think, um, you know, there's something going on there with pitch design, pitch coaching, 
they're not getting as much as they could out of guys like Wheeler and Thor, and I think that's been a big problem for them this season. Um, and I think that's something they need to look into going forward. So I do think Wheeler is good. I think he could change his pitching mix and make them a little bit better. Uh, and I think that uh, the Mets have to look into their pitch coaching and pitch design uh, in particular. Now, uh, you mentioned Syndergaard. That was going to be my next point because he's the, you mentioned the slider. And even Edwin Diaz, not under Dan Worthen, has, has a lethal slider. Those guys are both struggling. They may be struggling to locate and command their slider. And with the new ball, and who knows, maybe the ball changes next year. Who knows? Uh, no, that's the worst that, part. I think that's really annoying. <laughs> yeah, and then who knows, who knows, can these guys be successful? Look, yes, you're right. You go to another organization or with the Mets, and you say, look, we got to change the way you pitch. But Noah Syndergaard may not be able to do that. Edwin Diaz becomes a fastball pitcher that we, you know, a hitter could sit on if he can't throw his slider. That's a big problem for guys like that. You wonder – are, slider, are guys who are heavily reliant on the slider and don't have the ability to move away from that, are they going to be going the way of the dinosaur? Are they going to be extinct very soon? I don't know. I mean, if you look around the league, slider and breaking ball usage is at its peak for all-time peak. Um, so there are other teams that are figuring it out. And it may be a weakness in the woods and slider in particular, a sort of remnant of Dan Watson's coaching that is coming to bite them in the butt right now. Uh, that that seems totally possible. And so maybe they have to learn more conventional sliders, um, power curves, knuckle things. Maybe they have to, you know, get on their their pine tar situation. And, and you know, I know pitchers in the league right now that boil up uh, Coca-Cola and pine tar and some other stuff to make a concoction to, to get the most grip on the ball. So, wow. you know, maybe they need to look into that because everybody's doing it. I was talking to a pitcher, and he was loading up while he was talking to me. So, wow! Look uh, at that. Bill Necro is it's somewhere it's... smiling. Joe Necro is somewhere yeah. smiling. Gaylord Perry is somewhere smiling. Think about that. That's you know it's not the steroid era, right? Yeah. Infielders. Infielders are putting pine tar in their gloves so that when they get a ball and they throw it to the to the pitcher, they they put a little pine tar on it for them. So uh, it's an it's an interesting situation out there, uh, and I do think that the Mets need to adapt, but I don't necessarily think that, you know, putting the slider away is the answer. Uh, because right now, everyone's hunting the fastball, and the fastball is flying out of the stadium. So that the most response for other teams has been a ton of sliders. You look at the Yankees just across town, they throw more sliders than anyone. They throw more breaking balls than anyone. And, you know, they they have the best strikeout rates. So, you know, that, that's, I think, the solution is reduce balls in play. Go after the strikeout throw more breaking pitches, find the grip that, that makes it work for you. Well, that, that's for sure. Eno Saris, the athletic, joining us here. Uh, a couple of things, you know, before we let you go. Uh, I threw out a wild thought here on Twitter. Padres are interested in Noah Syndergaard. Chris Paddock is on an innings limit. Uh, they love Syndergaard. Now, you want to win now, and you want someone who could help you in the postseason and maybe is developed, and maybe you think you have the answer to fix his slide or fix what's ailing him, or maybe it's a change of scenery, would you do a paddock for Syndergaard swap in a scenario where the Mets say, you know, we don't care about the innings limits. We don't care about the development. We're out of it. And the Padres who need somebody to help them maybe win, because you sneak into the tournament, uh, you know, you know, there's like 20 teams within five games of wild card. You could win. I mean, it's not inconceivable in the game today. You can win. Uh, You don't have to play just like the NBA. I just I'm not sure they'll do it because Paddock has just shown so much this year and 
I think that they believe in him in a way. I, I, I do think that the Padres match up. And I do think that there's a possible trade there because the Padres have a lot of organizational depth when it comes to pitching prospects. And they could send three or four. And that's, I think that's just the more traditional way that these trades go. It's not one high-profile guy for another. It's, you know, we're going to give you Joey Lucchese and Logan Allen and Luis Patino uh, for Thor. For, uh, and that might make sense for, for the Mets, too, because it gives them three chances next year uh, to, to build starting pitchers uh, that they can have for a while. So I do, think, I do think those teams match up. I'm just not sure that Paddock is going to go. I think the Padres probably feel like they have their own ace in Paddock. Yeah, I, I understand. I'll throw that out there. Uh, you know, as, as as far as the trade deadline changing, I think you're going to see a wild July 31st. And I know that you always hear scouts say, well, you know, for Zach Wheeler, you can only get the seventh or eighth best prospect. And uh, everybody uses the media, uh, the, the the press, to yeah. figure out if they could get an advantage. I mean, I think that's the part that the fans sometimes don't get. It's a It's a tool if it's used properly. Oh, when yeah. you're on all the these clock, leaks are all these leaks are designed to to change the the conversation they're having. Right, exactly. And if you're on the clock and it's three o'clock and Zach Wheeler's sitting out there, are you really? If you want to win and you feel as strongly about Zach as maybe some of the, you know you you know you've heard people feel about him, you think that this is a a, a a rotation piece that will help you compete and win now. I'm not saying you're going to give away the farm. I'm not saying maybe you'll give up your number one prospect or can't miss Fernando Tatis Jr., but wouldn't you think about going a little bit more aggressive because you can't go in August and see what happens. you got to do it now. I think it might change the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder. Uh, one thing that makes me wonder that it maybe uh, it won't be as active as we think is, is just that um, you're going to have to make that decision earlier, right? So – there's going to be more teams that think we can play our way into this or we're still in this. And if that's the case, then there's going to be more teams sort of focusing around the six teams that are totally out of it. And if everyone picks the Marlins and the, uh, and the Orioles dry, dry basically, uh, you know, and takes every reliever out of the Giants bullpen, there may not be a lot of movement after that. Uh, that's just the one thing I, I think about. It's just that there's not only yes, that you have to make the decision at one date, and that that puts a lot of pressure on that one date, but also that you have to make the decision earlier. And you can't just say, oh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll try and get someone, you know, in August or whatever. Um, so I, I think that there is some pressure on this on not making moves. And generally in baseball, everyone's hugging their prospects pretty tightly right now. So yeah. everyone wants to win now and later. And so uh, it would be an interesting one. I, I, I'm not so sure it'll be much more active, but I, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to learn when, the, when we yeah. see what happens. All right, last one, and then uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, are you a Jeff McNeil believer? Guy doesn't walk a lot, swings at the first pitch. There's some of those uh, wee willy killer, uh, killer hits out there. You know, people have compared him to Wade Boggs. Obviously, he's got these great numbers through his first four or 500 plate appearances. Guy's a gamer. Guy has that, you know, confidence that you can't develop. But the process at times is against what you see today. 
Are you a Jeff McNeil believer? He's an all-star, and 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 him and Pete Alonso may be the the face of this franchise, similar to how Reyes and Wright were. And even though they fizzled out a little sooner than normal, maybe this is a new generation of of Reyes and Wright in a different way. I believe in him, and but it, it, he's very interesting for a lot of different reasons. He's 27 years old. I mean, he tried to be a pro a pro golfer and. That's actually kind of really interesting because normally when you're 27 years old and you just got to the big leagues, it means that you weren't that good and that you had to really figure things out and you got to the big leagues finally when you peaked and they finally gave you a chance because you were you changed something, you've done something, you got bigger, you, whatever it is. But McNeil is 27 not because of that. He was fine in the minor leagues. He's 27 because he wanted to be a golfer. Uh, it's a little bit like um, – the the story behind uh, oh man who was the uh, Evan Gaddis you know everyone said he's too old he's not going to be good for the for the Astros well the reason he was old was because he was a bartender <laughs> he was he wasn't playing baseball he was out there living life so um, I think that the age thing is a little bit overstated all that it means is this is Peak McNeil there's not a lot more to him I think he's an above average player that has elite contact ability. And that's a great thing to have with the rabbit ball in particular, because if you can put the ball in play and the ball is flying, you're going to have a lot more power than people expect out of you. He reminds me a little bit about Marco Scudero, uh, a guy who could just put every ball in play and uh, was a useful player. So I don't think he's necessarily a star, uh, but given that he can play all over the field and, uh, and makes has this elite tool, I definitely believe in him like that. I think he's definitely an above average player. So, He's going to be useful to the Mets also because they can kind of be like, you know, oh, we'll, you know, we'll go get a third baseman and move McNeil there, or we'll put McNeil at third and we'll go get an outfielder. We can let the market come to us next year and see uh, what kind of players we can add and move McNeil wherever we need him. That's a great point. Uh, Good stuff. So what do you have coming up? I know you're a fantasy guy. You want to give us a a fantasy name that we could add to our uh, teams before the year is out that no one's talking about? What else you got uh, going on at the Athletic? What kind of pieces you got coming up, and what do you got going on over the next uh, week or so? Oh, I, I haven't done my fantasy column for the week yet, um, and I took last week off, so I'm not exactly sure uh, that I have a name off the top of my head. One guy that I like a lot is a Reds pitcher named Tyler Molly. Uh, he has a top 20 strikeout minus walk rate and uh, a new changeup and a new breaking ball. Um, so I, I think that the, even though he's giving up too many home runs right now, he also has uh, top shelf command. I, I think the second half might be better for him, and he's an interesting pitcher that's available everywhere. So uh, Tyler Molly, M-A-H-L-E. Um, otherwise, I have a piece coming up tomorrow that's uh, five predictions about the second half, dealing with uh, who's going to win divisions, who's going to win awards, and, and stuff like that. So uh, I try to walk the line between, you know, writing about, you know, analytics and, and you know, baseball and how, you know, for example, uh, they're phasing out TrackMan next year, and we're going to have a, a Hawkeye, a new uh, the, the thing from tennis. We're going to have the, the uh, a new set of uh, of uh, systems to to give us the the, the Statcast data and stuff like that. So I write about that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, also fantasy. So hopefully uh, people will see the value in that. And also, it's not just me. I mean, Ken Rosenthal is like the goat of all time, and then there's you know uh, uh, Jason Stark, who I just respect so much uh not to mention all the local guys that are great so i think the athletic is is definitely worth your time and and attention and i guess and your money 
<laughs> yeah, and and it's and it's they got good deals as well. You know, it's been a while. I've been trying to get you on. I, I enjoy appreciate your work. Enjoy your time here. Let's do this again. Be well and and keep it up. All right, my friend. Yes, thanks for having me on. That's uh, Eno Saris, the athletic. Good stuff. Been meaning to get him on. Uh, enjoyed his work at Fangraphs and uh, been following him. He's been following me for a long time. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. All right, we're back, and I just wanted to thank Eno Saris of The Athletic. You can check him out on Twitter, at Eno Saris. And, again, I'm not getting paid for this. I'm just telling you, The Athletic really has some really good content, uh, Mets content. I think they have tons of deals that you could get, like a subscription for the year for virtually uh, the price. You're probably going to pay more for coffee over the next 12 months than you would for The Athletic. Let's, let's put it that way. So check out not only Eno, but all the great writers, including like Tim Britton of The Mets is there. Not a huge Mark Keurig fan, but you know he does some good work, and they had a good podcast, him and Pete McCarthy. Pete McCarthy does a podcast over there, so some good stuff over there. Uh, I just want to remind everybody, uh, again, no more Metsmerized Online. You won't be able to get the show there. But look, the, the, the feed is the same. If you've subscribed already, nothing for you to do. You're just going to continue to get the same podcast. It's still called Talking Mets. And you go to the uh, if you want to just go to the website to get an update, or if you're finding me on Twitter or you found me through something else, the website's Talkin' Mets Podcast, Talkin' T A L K I N Mets Podcast dot com. That brings you right to the app, Apple feed. So if you just you know it'll bring you right there. You could email me Mike Silva M I K E S I L V A at talkingmetspodcast dot com. Love to hear comments from you. Mets commentary will occasionally if we have a good comment. I could share it on the podcast, so there's a lot of stuff good going on. Nothing negative, all good stuff. Again, I want to thank everybody. Of course, you can check out the show at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. That's it, everybody. We'll have another Talking Mets podcast very soon. Thanks a lot. Be well. Be well.